Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks. Corinthians 14, 26 through 40, the word of God speaks to us. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only one, only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, Let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. You can grab a seat. What could possibly be offensive about that? So glad that you're with us today. Uh, some of you are like, did you disobey the text while reading it? Like we just had a, you know, did Bailey just, lots of questions. Hey, we're going to get to it, I promise. Uh, if you're curious, this is not just like, hey, here's a fun verse we should look at together as a church. Uh, what we love to do is take books of the Bible and work our way through these books. And the reason why is because there's stuff like this in the Bible that if it were left up to me cherry picking verses, I would not pick a passage like this to preach. It would make my top 50 list uh, of sermon options. And so what's so fun about the Bible is that it forces us, if we take it as it's given to us, it forces us to grapple with and wrestle with stuff that the church desperately needs to grapple and wrestle with. So that's what we're going to do today. I promise we will get there. I think it'll be helpful and hopefully encourage you. There's really important stuff in here that we need to look at together today. We're going to do it. But before we get there, I just have a sense this morning that some of you this morning feel like you're on the outside. And I want you to know from the Lord that you are, you're actually being invited in. And I don't know what you're carrying. I don't know what stories uh, you, you have. I don't know what your past is. I don't know some of the sin that you're wrestling with or some of the, the baggage or whatever. There's all kinds of things in the room. And I just want you to know you're welcome. You're welcome here. Come in and be well and be at peace. And I think God wants to meet you today. So I want to pray for you. I would love it if you would pray for me because I have to preach this sermon. And uh, if you have a Bible, definitely head to... Fir- 1 Corinthians 14, to make sure that what I'm saying is actually in there. Sound good? 
All right, Jesus, would you meet us today? Thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift that this whole letter has been to us as we've worked through it. And we pray today, uh, just as there's already tension in the room and confusion and questions, and maybe not even related to this text, maybe related to the songs that we're singing or the, the baptisms or being in church. I don't, I don't know what it is, but I pray that you would meet my friends today with your love. I, I don't assume that there's anything that I have to say that's helpful today. We, we want to hear from you. We want to sit underneath your word, and we need to, to hear not just your truth, but also to, to experience your heart. So would you do that today? Would you meet us today? Shape us. Pray these things in your name. Amen. In his commencement speech at Kenyon College back in 2005, David Foster Wallace, who is a, a well-known American writer, a really good American author, he opened up his commencement speech with this story that you may have already heard. He said, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the heck is water? And then he goes on to say this. He says, the immediate point of the fish story is that the most obvious Ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. Now, here's why I share that story with you, because Paul is writing something to the church, both in Corinth then, but because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, is actually applicable to our own lives today that's really profound. It's really important. He's talking about how the church should function when they gather on Sundays, what it looks like as we're doing what we're doing, even in this moment. And here's the, here's the problem that you and I face. Because of the cultural waters that we're swimming in, there's one of two reactions that just immediately can happen, one of two extremes. The first one is to read a passage like this and be like, oh yeah, I got it, check, makes sense, and move on, just assuming that you know what it is saying and actually not building your life on it, not having it shape the way that you interact with the church and with Jesus and with other Christians. And yet there's another extreme that's probably more applicable to us where we, we're highly offended by it. We just want to disregard it altogether. And so what I want to do before we get to the text today is I want to just share three different cultural shifts that have happened with you, uh, happened in our society that you and I are growing up in and experiencing that is sort of trying to name the water that we're all in, right? To name the water that you and I are swimming in. So here's the first one. The first one is the rise of what's been called the modern self, the rise of the modern self. And this has been probably 50 to 75 years in the making, probably longer than that, but the real shifts over the last 50 years. And here's how I tried to explain this uh, to a group of teenagers recently. I, I got the joy of preaching at our student camp and I tried to talk about the modern self with them in a way that they would understand. So here's how I did it. I just talked about all the, the movies that they grew up with as kids. So think about these movies that you've probably heard of or seen. Uh, Kung Fu Panda is a movie about a fat and lazy panda who has dreams of becoming a Kung Fu master. Ratatouille is a movie about a rat who dreams of becoming a French chef in a rodent-phobic world, right? He's got his work cut out for him, right? And then you've got Turbo, which is about a garden snail who dreams of racing in the Indy 500. And then the last one I'll mention is Planes, which is about a crop duster dreaming of competing in the wings around the globe race. Now listen, 
Truth be told, keys on the table, I like all these movies. I think these movies are great. I've seen them all. My kids have seen them all. These are really fun movies. But notice the theme that's at play in the movies because it's sort of just so embedded in our cultural moment. Luke Eplin wrote a really fascinating article for The Atlantic, and here's what he said about these movies, specifically the last two. He says, both of these films, Turbo and Planes, are about restless characters that never wake up to reality. Crop dusters cannot fly faster than racing planes. Snails cannot go faster than race cars, right? When I said this, by the way, at our student camp, I got booed, almost booed off the stage. No kidding. I was like, it's not even offensive. I'm saying a fact, you know, and they're like, boo, right? It's really, really wild. But notice what he goes on to say. He says, the bad guys are always the naysaying authority figures who need to be enlightened about the importance of never giving up on your dreams, no matter how irrational, improbable, or disruptive to the larger community. Now, these, these examples are silly. I know this is like, we're not, I'm not trying to pick apart kids' movies. They're kids' movies. It's fine. But here's the point I'm trying to make. There's some message out there in our culture that you and I swim in all the time and don't even realize it that says that if I desire something, I not only should be able to pursue that, but I should be encouraged by you to pursue that. And if you say that I can't do that or shouldn't do that or that's bad for other people, then you're bad. How dare you? the rise of the modern self. The second transition is from molds to platforms, from molds to platforms. Uh, This is, again, a shift over the last 50 years or so that totally changed the way that we see institutions. So think of institutions like the university, government, your job, the church, marriage is an institution. So think about these institutions and and the, and the, uh, the more traditional view, if you will, the historic view of institutions was that they existed to shape me and form me as a mold, right? So the question that you would ask in these institutions is not just what do I want, but particularly you would ask, how shall I act here given my position in this institution? But we've shifted and changed where no longer do we see things like the university or your job or school or government or church or marriage as a mold. Now we see these as a platform for my own personal brand, something that I can use to just push my own personal brand. Uh, Yuval Levin in A Time to Build says, the people who occupy our institutions increasingly understand those institutions not as molds that ought to shape their behavior and character, but as platforms that allow them greater individual exposure and enable them to hone their personal brands. So here's what's happening. People are literally choosing jobs or marriages or churches or whatever schools so that they can push their own brand or express their true self to the world. That's a shift that we need to acknowledge where historically these institutions were molds that shaped and formed us into better people. And then the last shift that's happened is a view of restrictions and rules and authority as inherently oppressive. And I'm not going to spend any time on this. You just know it. Like you see it all over the place. If anyone is an authority figure in your life, if anyone tells you no, if anyone restricts your personal rights or something that you desire to be or express in the world, they're bad and that's wrong. You should always be true to yourself no matter what. And authority often is oppressing our true selves. Now, what does this have to do with anything that we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, let alone this letter as a whole? Well, actually quite a bit. Here's why, because what we're going to find in the New Testament is that I'm actually not an isolated, autonomous self, but rather I'm simply one of many very important parts 
of the body of Christ. What I do affects you, and what you do actually affects me. And friends, the church is not a platform for my brand or for my gifts. Rather, the church is a mold that God is using to shape me and form me into a more mature follower of Jesus. In fact, spiritual gifts, they're not given so that I can push my own brand or show everybody how great I am. Spiritual gifts are given so that we can build up and edify the church with this others-oriented love. And finally, we know this, but restrictions and rules and authority, they are not inherently oppressive, but rather God has given me restrictions. He has given me authority and rules so that I can have a life of flourishing as a human being. And if you buy into this cultural narrative that's just so out there that you and I are swimming in left and right, there's so much of the New Testament that's at loggerheads with that, that when you come to a passage like this today, you go, I don't even know what to do with that. I don't know if I should throw that out or twist this or what. We don't know how to receive the word of God as it comes to us in our culture. So today what we're doing is actually going to wrestle with something that Paul is saying to the church as this gathered group of people, how do we do this? How do we do what we're doing right now? And how do we scatter throughout the week? What's the best way? That's what Paul is addressing today. So here's what I wanna do. I'll read a few verses and then we'll pause and take a look at it. Just four things that I want you to see real briefly. Here's the first one. Look at verse 26. He says, what then brothers or brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Here's the first thing that I want you to see. Potluck over performance. Potluck over performance. Now, here's what I mean. If you're not careful, as a follower of Jesus in a place like Oklahoma, what can happen very quickly is that you start to relate to the church This thing that we're doing right now, the people in this room, you start to relate to the church as a follower of Jesus, as a spectator or an observer watching a performance unfolding before your eyes. Now, you may have even had a thought like this this morning or a few thoughts like this, like, man, I really liked the worship today. Or, man, I didn't really like the worship that we did today. And and that that one's always kind of a weird one for me because I'm like, well, you know the worship's not for you, right? Like we're actually worshiping Jesus. So I think he's the one that should be able to say, I really like the worship today or no, I didn't really like that so much, right? But we're we're taking on that seat. Maybe that's a thought you've had today or maybe you had a thought like, man, the way they do baptisms here is a little bit weird. Or maybe you thought, where is this guy going with his sermon intro, right? These are all thoughts that you might've had this morning. And listen, those are fine thoughts. There's nothing bad about any of those thoughts. But what I'm trying to push on just a little bit is this reality that over time, if we're not careful, you start to see yourself as a follower of Jesus, as a spectator or observer of a performance that me and the other pastors are putting on for you. It's almost like me and the other pastors got together and were like, hey, uh, we'd like to invite you to an event that we're going to hold every Sunday at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. It'll be about an hour and a half long, and we're going to do some singing together, and then there's going to be a lecture, and then we'll raise money for a good cause. We'll even have some fun stuff for your kids to do while you're in the sanctuary, and then you know, we'll, we'll send you out, and, and hopefully you'll like it, and you'll bring some friends back next week. If that's the way that you view the church, I just want you to realize it's completely opposite what we are trying to fight for as a church. That's not what we're doing. We're not inviting you to a performance. We're actually inviting you in to something that's a lot more like a potluck. Have you ever been to a potluck? Uh, I grew up Southern Baptist, so we were like full-time potluckers, like professional potluckers. Done a lot of potlucking in my life, not trying to brag. Um, 
And you know, in a potluck, like you know how this works where everybody contributes and it might be something really big or really small, an entree or a side item. It could be something super delicious like fatty smoked sliced brisket, all right? Or uh, or like bacon-wrapped pan-seared trout or fried chicken. You know, it could be something delicious like that. These are just some of my favorite things to bring to a potluck. Or it could be something less delicious like a green bean casserole or literally anything with peas inside of it. Um, maybe, maybe you bring something that was really expensive and well thought out, like sushi. I've never been to a potluck where someone was like, hey, I brought sushi to this potluck. Uh, or maybe you're the person that like, you're like, I brought a bag of ice. Thank you for that. Thank you for the bag of ice. I know that 4th of July texts are flying around right now, and some of you are ice people, and we're all judging you, and we want you to know that. Like, that is not thought out. It did not take that long or that much money, so really not thanks, but no thanks for the bag of ice, right? But my point is this, that what you should view yourself as a follower of Jesus is not being invited to some performance, but a potluck. And what I want you to realize is like what we're doing here on Sundays is not a performance that your pastors are putting on for you. This is something that we're saying, hey, God has given you and me spiritual gifts. We all get to play. We all get to offer something. We all get to contribute together. And I just want to invite you to think about yourself, both as you gather on Sundays and as we scatter in the context of community groups, to realize that you actually have something to offer. I want you to bring on Sundays your hunger and your anticipation to meet with the living God. Do you drive here thinking, I get to encounter the living God today with my friends, people that were once far from God, and now we've been brought together in Christ? Do you uh, show up and, and put your hands in your pocket and observe what's happening on the stage, or are you engaged in the worship of the living God that loved you when you did not love him in, re- in return and was merciful and gracious and actually died in your place so that you could be forgiven and reconciled back to the Father? That's something we're worth celebrating and putting your hands out in the air and realizing that you have something to contribute and offer as we worship Jesus on Sundays. I want to invite you to to bring your Bibles and open them up and actually read and study this with us. I'm not the one that's paid to study the Bible for you. Like we're all doing this together. Amen. I want to invite you to show up on Sundays with your eyes wide open and noticing people who are new or noticing people that haven't been around and being a hospitable presence to them, welcoming them. Can you imagine what it would look like if it wasn't just the, the Frontline South team that had the full-time job of like greeting and creating a hospitable environment for people, but every single member of our church was like, hey, welcome in. We, we love you. Is there something that we can do to bless you, to serve you, to, to care for you? That's what I want to invite you to do. Show up with prophetic words and with prayers and with spiritual gifts and all the different things that God has given you because this is a potluck that we are throwing together for the glory of God. Amen? This is what it is. It's not a performance. It's a potluck. Now, now some of you, I know that there's kind of an objection in the room that some of you are having of like, well, okay, Andrew, I hear what you're saying, but here's the problem. The problem is I've been around a few Sundays and I know how you guys do things. It's really structured. It's really ordered. It's generally the same groups of people that get up to lead worship, the same groups of people that get up to preach, the same groups of people that are doing the ministry on Sundays. And so how is it that this is true, that you're inviting us to come and play when it's just the same people every week that are doing this thing on Sundays? Or maybe another way to ask it is, has the church grown in really unhelpful rigidity over the years? 
Have we lost sight of what Paul really wanted for the early church and maybe we've become too structured in our own culture today? Well, that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is not just potluck over performance, but order over chaos. Look at verse 26. He says, what then, brothers? Notice this line. When you, what? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Then look at this line. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at most three in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But there is no one to interpret. Let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. We talked about speaking in tongues two weeks ago. You can find that on our website. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You can hear our sermon on prophecy. It's on the website. Look at verse 33. It says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Some translations read order. He's not a God of confusion, but of order or peace. And then fast forward, look at verse 39. He says, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, now here's what I want you to notice, that everything that Paul's been writing from chapter 11 onward, all the way through 12, 13, and 14, has been in the context of the gathered Church, what we are doing here when we gather on what we call the Lord's Day every Sunday to celebrate. Paul is thinking in terms of the gathered church. Everything he says about uh, uh, chapter 11, about communion, what he says in chapter 12, 13, 4, all of it is specifically in context of what you and I are doing right in this moment. In other words, what Paul is not envisioning is every potential scenario that you as a Christian might find yourself in with other Christians. He's not envisioning what you do with your discipleship group or how you gather with your community group throughout the week or what you do at a coffee shop when you run into two or three other Christians. He's not talking about any situation in which you might find yourself in as a Christian. He's talking about, he uses this phrase, in church, when you come together on the Lord's Day. This is a gathered context that Paul is referencing. And what's really fascinating is what Paul primarily does in this last part of chapter 14 is actually limit and order and even restrict the practice of even really good things like tongues and prophecy for the sake of the whole so that everything can be done beneficially and in order. So let me say it like this. Not everything good that the church can do and should do can or should happen on a Sunday morning between the hours of 9 and 11. Not everything good that the, can, that the church can do or should do can or should happen right in this instance as we gather here together. There are dozens and dozens of things that the New Testament calls the church to do and be a part of and experience. And there's this whole organic part of the church that we're supposed to experience life from and serve one another and bear one another's burdens and hear each other's stories and learn how to care for one another in very specific ways and and live on mission and evangelize and love the poor and do good works in our city. There's all these things that the church is called to do. We cannot do it all on a Sunday morning. 
nor should we. And actually what Paul is envisioning here is a difference between how the church gathers and even how the church scatters. This is why what Frontline values is not just the one or two hours that we're together on a Sunday morning, but we value the, the, the church scattered the six days between Sundays as we live in the context of community. And I just want to say a couple of things about this. If you are not connected to real Christians in a real way, the way we do this as a church is through community groups. It is impossible to experience the full life and and the joy of what it is to be a part of the church as you show up on a Sunday morning. Sunday mornings are amazing. Sunday mornings are special. We sort of think of Sunday mornings like a, a, a birthday party, if you will, or an anniversary celebration. Like, I love my wife 365 days a year, but there's something special about our anniversary where it's like, we're going to go all out. I, I love my kids all year, but on their birthday, it's like, there's something unique that we're going to do that otherwise we normally wouldn't do. And that's what the Lord's Day is for the church. We, we gather and we baptize people, even though through the six days throughout the week, we often don't do that. We, we take communion union together. We don't do that on Monday night in the privacy of our own home. We do that when we gather together on Sundays. We sing together. We hear the word together. There's something unique about what we're doing, but that's not all the life of the church. We need to value both what we do here on Sundays and what we do in scattering throughout the week. So when we gather, there's way more intentionality, way more structure, and participation from you and I looks different. But when we scatter, it's way more flexible there's way more participation, and there's way less structure. And that's what Paul's concern is, is, hey, when you show up on Sundays, it needs to look in an orderly way so that everybody could be edified. Could you imagine how tragic it would be if uh, we said, all right, we're all going to take some time, and everyone's going to give a five-minute update on what they're carrying this morning. And then we're going to spend some time praying for each individual person. We would be here till next week, And no one would love that. It would be horrible. Like the first two or three would be really impactful and then no one would care after that. Should you have moments where you sit together and you hear each other's stories and bear one another's burdens and pause and pray for one another? Yes, absolutely. But Sundays look different. So with that context in mind, think about what Paul's doing here. He restricts two really good things on Sunday mornings. The first is public tongues. He says, hey, if you have the gift of praying in tongues, only two or at most three, and each in turn. So you're not praying over each other. has to be one at a time, and someone must interpret or else pray silently to themselves and to God. So he restricts the gift of tongues because if everybody's praying in tongues, it's weird and it's not beneficial for anybody, especially if it's not interpreted. And then he does the same with prophecy. It's interesting, he actually restricts prophecy. He says two or three prophets can speak, The others weigh and test what is said. In other words, there's a public prophetic word that's given, and then there's a moment where you weigh that prophetic word. Is it biblical? Is that from God? Is that uh, something that we should adhere to? Is that something that we should uh, share with the church, right? There's a weighing and a testing of the prophetic word. And then Paul says, if somebody else is given a prophetic word, the first group is supposed to be quiet and let that other person offer up his or her prophetic word. Now, it's within the context of judging and evaluating prophetic words that Paul goes on to say the thing that you've all been either really, really nervous about or really, really outraged about since you heard the scripture read for today. So let me show you the third thing, honor over shame, honor over shame. Look at verse 33, the second half of verse 33. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as the law also says. 
If there's anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. What do we do with this? Well, the knee-jerk reaction among many of us is to look at a text like this and go, surely it can't mean what it says that it means. Like, surely it can't mean that. And usually we say that, we have that knee-jerk reaction because we don't like it or because it doesn't fit with our modern sensibilities or because of something that we've been kind of enculturated in in our own worldview and we struggle with something that the Bible is offering us up. So usually that knee-jerk reaction is unhelpful if your first reaction is, I don't like this, it can't be true, right? There are, however, times when that knee-jerk reaction, surely it can't mean this, is actually helpful if the reaction is rooted in something else that the context of the passage says, or maybe something else that another passage says, or something else that the rest of the New Testament teaches. So sometimes that can serve you as long as your knee-jerk reaction isn't rooted in your own sensibilities, but in something that the text actually says. Now, here's what the text sounds like. It sounds like an absolute 100% ban on women speaking in church services, period. And some of you, you hear that and you're like, of course Paul would say that. Of course Paul would say that because Paul's a patriarchal misogynist and I'm not surprised. And if that's your like immediate thought process, I want to read this from Kathy Keller who wrote a phenomenal book called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. I cannot highly recommend this book to you enough. It's really short. She says, the charge of misogyny against Paul is unsupported by even a casual reading of the New Testament. He worked alongside women, deputized them to carry his letters, established house churches in their homes, and expected them to be full participants in the body of Christ with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Sadly, and this is where Kathy Keller gets really spicy, she says, sadly, many people do not take the time to make even a casual study of the words and deeds of Paul so that this charge so easily disproven lives on among the biblically less literate. Wow, ooh, ouch, right? Kathy's like, oh, if you think he's a misogynist, you just haven't done your work. You've not actually read what the Bible has to say, what Paul has taught, and how he lived. So it sounds like Paul is saying that women cannot speak in church, and yet we had a woman read our scripture reading today in the context of the gathered church. So what does this mean? Well, a couple of things to remember that I think are really, really key. Don't forget that in chapter 11, Paul spent 15 verses talking about women praying and prophesying and encouraging them to do so, but was dealing with how they did it with head coverings or hair. You can hear a whole sermon about head coverings. I know that's like super fun and you can't wait to listen to that one, but we did a whole sermon on head coverings and hair. And Paul in that chapter, the point of it is that he's urging and encouraging women to pray and prophesy in church. So he cannot mean that it's a full-on restriction of women speaking in church at all. There's a lot of ways to interpret this, and what we're going to do is email you a really helpful resource this week by Dr. Sam Storms, where he, he gives all nine of the known positions out there, and he shows you what different people say, and most of them are like really unhelpful. Some of them are actually really helpful. We're going to email that to you. If you're not on our weekly happenings email, you can go to frontlinechurch.com happenings, and that'll come into your inbox probably around Thursday of this week. So we're going to get you this resource so that you can do your own work later, but suffice it to say that this is actually the third time in chapter 14 alone that Paul has given a command for silence. The third time that Paul has given a command for silence. The first one came in verse 28. He says, but if there's no one to interpret, talking about speaking in tongues, 
Let each of them keep silent in church. Now, Paul's not saying if you have the gift of tongues and no one's there to interpret, you're not allowed to speak at all that day. Wholesale silence. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if, if, if you want to pray in tongues and no one's there to interpret, don't pray in tongues, right? Verse 30 says, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Here's my point. In both instances, this command to be silent is highly specific and it's bound by very clear contextual limitations. The context here matters. What Paul is addressing is orderly worship on a Sunday, specifically the judging and the evaluating of prophetic words. And it's within that context that he says, women, don't do that. The other thing to keep in mind, and this is really important, is don't forget that in chapter 11, what Paul has been addressing is a widespread, uh, very progressive, sexually promiscuous women's movement among Roman wives that had not just made its way throughout the Roman Empire, but it also made its way into the church at Corinth. And what was happening is you had ladies in the church that were saying, you know what, enough is enough, and now I, I want to live however I want to live, even if I'm married. And it doesn't matter, like, I'm going to dress in a sexually promiscuous way. I'm going to live in a very seductive way. And I'm going to take any opportunity I can to make jabs at my husband and dishonor him because I'm my own woman. And this is what was happening culturally in the Roman Empire at the time. It had made its way into the church. And Paul uses two words there that show up again here in this context where he talks about submission and he talks about uh, shame. And the idea here is that these ladies had to be reminded that, hey, if you are married to a man, what you're doing in your actions, either good or bad, either bring honor or shame on both your husband and on Jesus himself. The same is true of men. What we do, either good or bad, brings honor or shame on our wives, on other people in the church. And so what Paul had been emphasizing was the need for these, these Christian wives to, to respond, not in a way that was cultural, where they're saying, I don't need you, I can be my own woman, but to respond in a God-honoring way and be submitted to their husbands, not trying to reject them or abandon them or dishonor them publicly. So when you put those things together, here's what we think was happening, is that you had married men standing up giving prophetic words, and then there came that moment in the church where they would judge those prophetic words, they would evaluate those prophetic words, and some of the ladies, what they were doing was they were asking questions and weighing in and chiming in in a way that was intentionally dishonoring their husbands or other people's husbands. What they were doing was intentionally weighing in or asking questions to make him look dumb in front of other people so that they could themselves look superior to their other husbands. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but have you ever had someone ask you a question that you knew it really wasn't a question? It was just like they're trying to bite at you or they're trying to like make you look dumb. Uh, I get this opportunity all the time because I'm a pastor and we do Q&A sometimes as a church. And there are times where there's a question and it's like, oh, you just didn't have a real question. You just wanted us to look dumb. That's really great. Thank you for that. Let's just get coffee instead. Well, that's what was happening in the, the church services where these married wives were intentionally evaluating and judging prophecies in a way that was making their husband or other people's husbands look really, really bad. And Kevin DeYoung says this. He says, most commentators now agree that 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35 is about sifting the words of the prophets, an activity that could include analyzing the life of the prophet or cross-examining the prophet's speech and conduct. This kinds of activity was out of bounds for women who could very well end up interrogating their husband or someone else's husband. A wife cannot submit to her husband um, uh, of she's a wife cannot submit to her husband if she is asking him to submit to her judgment about his prophecy. 
Paul did not allow women to speak in this context, but encouraged wives to ask their probing questions of their husbands at home. And then finally, Kathy Keller again says this, Paul in 1 Corinthians is not condemning the public ministry of women, but regulating it. So here's what Paul is restricting very simply, the judging and evaluating of prophetic words. And if you're curious how Frontline does this, this is why Frontline only allows elders on a Sunday morning to judge and evaluate prophetic words that are given to the church. If you're an individual and somebody gives you a prophetic word, it's on you to judge it and evaluate it. Is it true of scripture? Does it line up with the heart of God? Does it resonate with your life and your story? On Sunday mornings, though, the only people that we allow to do this are the the pastors of our church that we believe God has entrusted authority to guard doctrine and actually weigh and test all of these things and figure out which we think is from the Lord and which we think is not. That's why we do this the way we do it as a Sunday. So ladies, please hear me. Don't hear what I'm not saying. We are not saying that women are less than. We are not saying that men are better than women. That's simply not true. We are not saying that this is license for your husband to be a bully or abusive. We are not saying that you can't participate in the life of this church in a meaningful way. If you are hearing that, I'm either not communicating my point very well or you are hearing someone else's voice right now either the voice of your dad or a pastor that you had in the past or some abusive whatever. But what we are trying to say is that if you are a woman, we love you. We celebrate you. We welcome you. You matter to our church. You can lead. You can serve. You can pray. You can prophesy. You can build up the church. You can teach the Bible. You can lead worship. You can lead a community group. You can oversee a team. You can hold the office of a deacon. You matter to our church. All we're saying is off limits, and this is actually true of everybody in our church, unless you're a pastor, is the judging and evaluating and analyzing of prophetic words. So last thing, and I'll be done with this point. If you hear this, man or woman, and this creates pain for you or confusion, or there's still something about this that is really like irksome to you, I I, want to suggest to you that maybe what's happening is some wound in you that Jesus wants to meet some place in your story where he wants to meet you with his love and meet you with his kindness. And I want to give you the chance to like sit down with one of us and just talk with us about that. You don't have to, but if it would help, if you're still hearing me and like, man, I don't like this. This feels painful. This feels bad. We are available to you. Reach out to us and we will meet with you and we will process. We want to hear your story. Chances are the Lord has something in your story that he wants to bring some healing to and some comfort to, okay? All right, so last thing, and then we'll be done. Humility over pride. Humility over pride. Notice Paul's words in verse 36. He says, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. What Paul is doing here is offering a powerful dose of humility to a church that so much of how they functioned and lived was actually rooted in spiritual pride. So much of what was driving all of the baggage in this church was actually rooted in a puffed up egotistical view of themselves that caused them to look down on and belittle other people. Things like, I speak in tongues and you don't, so I'm better than you. Or I have such and such spiritual gifts, so that means that I'm truly a spiritual person and you're not. Or I have more wealth than you do, so that means I matter and I have the right to be a bully. 
or things like, I follow this leader or that leader and you don't. You must not just be as wise and enlightened as I am. Or I can visit pagan temples and eat meat sacrificed to idols and participate in the worship of these pagan gods. It's not a big deal. It's my life to live. You do you and I'll do me. My life doesn't bother your life at all. Or even things like married women saying, I don't need my husband. Or married men saying, it's my body. I can do whatever I want with my body, even if it's sin with my body. There are all of these things happening in Corinth. And the, the, the thing behind the thing, the thing beneath all of it, was spiritual pride. And what Paul is saying here is really powerful. He says this line, or was it from you that the word of God came? Hey, you got to realize that like, you didn't even have the word of God. God in his mercy reached out to you and found you and sought you and bought you with his blood. He says things like, are you the only ones that it has reached? This is something we need to hear in our own culture today. We are not the first Christians on the scene. There have been a lot of Christians come before us There are other ways that God has been at work in people and throughout history, and we should be aware of that and actually have some humility about that. He goes on and says, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the the things that I'm writing to you are command of the Lord. It doesn't matter if you think that you're someone or that you matter or that you're spiritual or a prophet. If you disregard what the New Testament is saying, Paul is saying, you're disregarding commands of the Lord. Like have, have some humility here. And then he says this, he says, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And these are hard words, but what Paul is doing is inviting us out of spiritual pride, out of a puffed up, self-absorbed view of ourselves, into a view where we're actually humbly considering the needs of other people in the church as more significant, more important than our own needs. And this is a word that I need to hear every day. And this is a word that Paul is inviting you and I to receive. So friends, I just want to say this as we close, as we think about not just what we've been looking at at spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14, but the letter as a whole that we've been studying together, there's really an invitation for all of us who are followers of Jesus to embrace some spiritual humility here and actually have a posture of how can I outdo one another in showing honor? How can I be concerned with the other? How can I have my eyes wide open and do what I do, not because I want to do it, but because this is what's best and beneficial for the church as a whole. Amen? I want to invite you to stand up with me if you would. And I, I want to read this passage as we come to communion together. We're not being called into humility and not being given an example in which to walk in. But actually, as we remember the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, the fact that he offered his life to us and we get to receive his body and his blood in a fresh way today, I want you to read this text with me. I'll read it over you and let this sink in. This is, uh, this is our prayer as we come to the, the table today. If you're not a follower of Jesus, man, we love you like crazy. Uh, some of what we're saying today, maybe a lot of it is really weird and maybe you have questions and we are honored that you're with us and we would love to process the claims of Jesus with you. We're gonna ask you to not come and take this meal, but if you're a follower of Jesus, let's remember the humility of our Savior and allow that to shape our own humility. If you've been baptized, we talked about that later, and you're you're trusting Jesus, this is for you today. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others, and have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In humility, friends, you're invited to come and receive this sacrifice of love on your behalf. Come and receive in groups, and then we will send you out with a blessing in just a minute.